In the movie My Cousin Vinny, two northerners played by Ralph Macchio and Mitchell Whitfield are traveling through rural Alabama in their mint green Buick Skylark convertible when they stop at the Sack of Suds convenience store. Shortly after they leave, two other men in a green convertible arrive at the Sack of Suds and rob and kill the store clerk. This leaves the titular Vinny trying to get an eyewitness to the crime to buy this strange but true scenario. Is it possible the two defendants entered the store, picked 22 specific items off of the shelves, had the clerk take money, make change, then leave. Then two different men drive up in a similar... Don't shake your head. I'm not done yet. Wait till you hear the whole thing so you can understand this now. Two different men drive up in a similar looking car, go in, shoot the clerk, rob him, and then leave? No. They didn't have enough time. Well, how much time was they in the store? Five minutes. Five minutes? Vinny then gets the witness to say the five minutes was an estimate because he saw the Skylark arrive just as he was starting to make breakfast and then heard gunshots and saw a green convertible driving away just as he was about to start eating. So, Mr. Tipton, how could it take you five minutes to cook your grits when it takes the entire grit-eating world 20 minutes? I don't know. I'm a fast cook, I guess. I'm sorry, I was all the way over here. I couldn't hear you. Did you say you're a fast cook? That's it? Are we to believe that boiling water soaks into a grit faster in your kitchen than on any place on the face of the earth? I don't know. Well, perhaps the laws of physics cease to exist on your stove. Were these magic grits? I mean, did you buy them from the same guy who sold Jack his beanstalk beans? Uh, objection, Your Honor. Objection sustained. Are you Mr. sure about Tipton, that five you minutes? Can ignore the question. Know. Are you sure about that five minutes? I don't know. I think you made your point. Are you sure about that five minutes? I may have been mistaken. In episode one of the Rocky Myers series, we told you about the murder of Ludie Mae Tucker in Decatur, Alabama, and the initial suspect in that case, Anthony Coolbreeze Ballantyne. But it wasn't Ballantyne who was convicted of the fatal stabbing of Tucker. Instead, it was Robin Rocky Myers, a fish out of water from New Jersey, and his defense at first might seem as implausible as the one presented to my cousin Vinny. And yet, there's also strong reason to believe that it might be every bit as valid. Hi and welcome to Undisclosed. This is the second episode of The State vs. Rocky Myers, The Superman Defense. This is the second in a four-episode series about a man who might be 30 days away from execution despite significant evidence of his innocence. My name is Rabia Chaudhary. I'm an attorney and author of a non-story, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Susan Simpson and Colin Miller. Hi, I'm Susan Simpson. I'm an attorney in Washington, D.C., and I blog at The View from LL2. Hi, this is Colin Miller. I'm an associate dean and professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law, and I blog at Evidence Prof Blog. If you're anything like me, you are struggling to find enough time in the day to get everything done that needs to get done. You know how it is. Get all your work done, take care of house stuff, take care of the kids. I mean, it's just, it can be overwhelming. And if you're also like me, you need to be as efficient as possible. One of the ways I do that is by using stamps.com. Post office is great and all. I don't have the time. I just don't have the time to make the trips to the post office to like mail my packages and uh, all kinds of stuff. I mean, I just don't have the time. And so 
I stopped doing that a long time ago because I've been using stamps.com. Stamps.com is one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses and, by the way, private citizens who don't have small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts you can't even get at the post office. You can get all of the amazing services of the U.S. Post Office through Stamps.com right on your computer. Whether you are a small office sending invoices, you're an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. As long as you have a computer and a printer, you can just use it to print official U.S. postage 24-7. You don't have to worry about anything closing because, well, it's 24-7. Any time of the day, the kids are asleep, get around to your mail. Any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail's ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in the mailbox. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get $0.05 off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. That's amazing because I use a lot of priority mail. I mean, when you're sending out legal documents, guess what? how we file them? I file them with priority mail. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. And right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. All you got to do is go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Undisclosed. That's Stamps.com and enter Undisclosed. At the end of episode one, we left you with Sergeant Boyd testifying before the grand jury in mid-October 1991 that he was convinced that Anthony Cool Breeze Ballantyne had killed Ludie Mae Tucker. This testimony wasn't surprising. Three witnesses had said that they saw Ballantyne sell Tucker's VCR at a shot house on the same night as the murder. One said Ballantyne was wearing a white Oakland A's shirt that matched the description of the killer's bloodstained shirt given by Tucker and her cousin, Mamie Dutton. A knife and the A's shirt were seized from Ballantyne's house a few days after the murder, with the shirt having an unwashed bloodstain. And finally, Angela Ackland placed Ballantyne in an alley by Tucker's house with a bloodstained white shirt with a logo right around the time the crime was being committed. But fast forward a couple of weeks to October 28, 1991. There's a document in this case entitled The Tucker Murder Chronology. And on that date, we have our first mention of Rocky Myers. The entry says... Spoke with Marzell Ewing about auto theft and was told of Rocky being the suspect. Did not take written statement. So, who is Marzell Ewing? In episode one, we told you about Leon Butch Madden, the drug dealer at the shot house. He's the one who traded crack for the VCR on the night of the murder. Ewing was one of his employees. Here, he describes what he did for Butch. The things I've done for Butch, um, well, I've sold drugs, watched houses, um, Basically anything he asked, he needed at the time. And how did Ewing come to make a statement against Rocky Myers? Well, let's start a day or two before October 28th. Later on that evening, I went back on the other side of town to, towards my house, and I was over a friend of mine's house, and I was walking outside, and they pushed me back in the house and told me detectives and stuff around my house with shackles and stuff. So I looked and hid behind a bush until they left. And later on, about, about a day or two later, I went and turned myself in, asked them what they want. And that's when everything comes out about a VCR, a murder, and all of that stuff. Upon arrival at the station, Ewing told Sergeant Boyd some information that was a game changer in the case. Well, when I got to the station, they had me in a questioning room, 
and he came and asked me did I know anything about um, the murder and I was like well the guy that you have is the wrong guy because Rocky did it. Now, as noted in the murder chronology, Sergeant Boyd did not take a written statement from Ewing on October 28th. Instead, Ewing wouldn't give his written statement for another two weeks, not until November 10th, 1991. Ewing said that Anthony Coolbreeze Ballantyne had been over to the shot house at least two times on the night of Tucker's murder. But it was Rocky Myers who had traded the VCR for crack. Ewing would later testify to these same facts at trial. As noted by trial investigator Keith Russell, Ewing ended up being the state's star witness against Rocky because he was also Rocky's friend. The third person, Marzell Ewing, testified and perhaps was the strongest testimony as he stated he was a friend of Mr. Robin Myers. Also, as we'll discuss later, unlike other witnesses against Rocky, Ewing's story was consistent and he never changed it. But at this point, you might be asking for a rewind. The murder chronology said that on October 28th, Sergeant Boyd spoke with Marzell Ewing about an auto theft and was told of Rocky being the suspect. So what's the deal with the auto theft? It's a question that Rocky's trial counsel never explored. But his post-conviction counsel did, and it turns out that Ewing's statement about voluntarily going to the police station on the 28th wasn't true at all. Let's ourselves rewind Ewing's story about how he came to tell Boyd he had the wrong man. Let me back up a little bit. Do you remember being picked up by the police um, in a stolen vehicle? Yes. Back in that time? Yes. Okay. Can you just tell me a little bit about that? Well, they uh, picked me up in a stolen vehicle. They asked me, uh, well, when I got to the station, they had me in a questioning room, and he came and asked me, did I know anything about um, the murder? Now, the obvious next question is how an interrogation about Ewing's car theft shifted to Ewing implicating his friend in a murder. And the obvious answer is quid pro quo. What happened to you after you provided that information to Boyd? Uh, Boyd, Boyd told me that um, they had Butch in the next room and that if I go back with him, then he'll take the car to on the side, uh, back to Nashville or whatever and tell him he found it on the side of the road. Um, how'd you come to be in possession of that stolen vehicle? Well, me and uh, Flatbroke went to Nashville and stole it. Who that? You, don't know, you don't know who Flatbroke's real name is. Flatbroke is, uh, I always call him Flatbroke. It's, um... There's a reason that Ewing is struggling to remember the name Gregory Miller. That's because as Miller himself will tell you, he always went by the street name Flatbroke. Yeah. That's it. Do you need any other questions? What else I mean, you got to say? Yeah. Um, Robin, Robin, is he going to see this? Um, I think it's okay. I mean, I think it's great. Tell him flat, bro. He don't know about Craig. Yeah. yeah, tell him flat, bro. Yeah. And just tell him that I said, hey, and keep his head up and I love him. Flatbro corroborates Ewing about being arrested in a stolen car. Do you remember um, stealing a car uh, out yes. of Nashville? Out of Nashville, Tennessee. Can you tell me just... Tell me that story a little bit about what you remember. Oh, I don't remember much because I was, I can't remember much about it because I was like 18, 19. I was just, just a thing I was doing, stealing cars, bringing them here. And you know, and people would drive them and you gotta sell them. But it's been, ooh, it was a white, no, it was a blazer. It was a blue and gray blazer. Marzell Ewing was driving. And 
they lost the gas cap at the gas station. And he come back. And I said, the gas cap. And they went back to the gas station to find the gas cap. And that's when the police pulled him over. And the two girls come back and said they picked him up. And Flatbroke's story is also corroborated by records from the Nashville police. First, an offense report dated October 25, 1991, states that a gray Chevy Blazer was indeed stolen in Nashville. Second, an affidavit by a Nashville police officer states that he spoke with Sergeant Boyd, who told him that he spoke to Ewing and Flatbroke about the stolen Blazer. Third, there's an offense report dated October 28, 1991, the same day that Ewing spoke with Boyd, in which a Nashville police officer writes that the stolen Chevy Blazer had been recovered in Decatur, Alabama, and that the victim wants the perpetrators to be charged. And finally, fourth, there's the dog that didn't bark. There's no record of Ewing or Flatbroke ever being charged with the car theft, despite Boyd seemingly having Ewing dead to rights. So yeah, Ewing and Flatbroke corroborate each other and are corroborated by the records. But there is one key point where the stories told by Ewing and Flatbroke diverge. You see, Flatbroke says he was also at the shot house on the night of the murder. After the murder had happened, Valentine Breeze brought a VCR in there to say uh, him and Breeze brought it in there by itself. And Butch gave him twenty dollars gave him twenty dollars of crack for it and he left out the door. Do you remember that night seeing anybody else bring any kind of equipment in or anything like that? No. No. That that night no one else came in with any equipment. Nothing else not. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com undisclosed. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com undisclosed. That's ZipRecruiter.com undisclosed. ZipRecruiter.com U-N-D-I-S-C-L-O-S-E-D. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Now, the jury at Rocky Myers trial never heard from Flatbroke, never even heard about the car theft. What they did hear was Marzell Ewing implicating his friend in a murder. But now, years later, according to Ewing, that story was a lie, and he didn't see the man who sold the VCR. Because the night the police came up in Sue's house, I was way on the other end of the porch, smoking and drinking. <laughs> so the only thing I seen was the guy walk in, and I seen the silhouette, but I didn't pay it too much attention. And I heard my uncle, well, I called him my uncle Butch, say the motherfucker better work. And he turned around and walked out. He said he did and turned around and walked out. So if Ewing didn't actually see the man sell the VCR that night, 
how is it that he came to tell Sergeant Boyd that it was Rocky who sold the VCR, in exchange for Boyd making the stolen car as she disappeared for Ewing? In one version of the story, Rocky's name came from Boyd himself. In another, Rocky's name first came up from Butch Madden. And I was like, well, the guy that you have is the wrong guy because Rocky did it. And that's only because Butch had told me he was the one who brought him the VCR. So I had no reason to dispute what Butch say. Or were these actually two different versions? There's another entry on the Tucker murder chronology for October 28th, 1991. It says Rabin and Madden are located and brought to the police department by Sergeant Boyd. Both tell that Rocky was in fact the VCR seller. No written statement was taken at that time. This entry is, of course, referring to Butch Madden and his right-hand man, Willie Reese Roadrunner Rabin, who, as we discussed last episode, initially told the police that it was Anthony Coolbreeze Ballantyne who had killed Tucker. So did these two men change their minds about who sold the VCR, followed by Sergeant Boyd telling Ewing that he'd dumped the stolen car if he adopted Madden's new story, so there'd be at least one witness who hadn't changed his tune? We don't know because, as noted, Boyd didn't take written statements from these men on October 28th. Indeed, he didn't take them until a couple weeks later, so we don't know what was said on the 28th. But we do know what Butch Madden said on November 12th and later at trial. According to Butch, Anthony Ballantyne did come to the shot house multiple times in the night of the murder. The first time, he bought a rock of crack. A second time, he didn't have money and was asking about buying crack on credit or collateral. And according to Butch, Ballantyne was wearing a white t-shirt or sweatshirt. But according to Butch, it was Rocky who had come that night and traded the VCR for crack. However, while Butch uses the name Rocky, he says, quote, I didn't know the dude's name, and I really still don't know for sure. Although he did pick Rocky out of a photo array. Finally, according to Butch, Rocky was wearing dark clothing, wasn't bleeding, and didn't have any blood in his clothes. But wait, why did Butch initially implicate Anthony Coolbreeze Ballantyne? Here's the pertinent exchange between the prosecutor and Butch at trial. The police were leaning on you when you were telling them it was Rocky because he was telling them that it was Breeze? Right. It was like a three or four page statement that he had made. They kept saying, Leon, you are lying and protecting him because it wasn't Rocky. I said, look, man, you can believe what you want, but I'm telling you the truth. I can't make you believe me. That was it. Did they finally get you to sign a statement saying it was Breeze? Yes, sir. And then there's Willie Rabin. He also gave a statement on November 12th in which he again said that Anthony Ballantyne came to the shot house multiple times the night of the murder. But like Butch, he now said that it was Rocky who pawned the VCR. According to Rabin, Rocky was wearing dark clothes, a cap like a toboggan, and a jacket. And as for why he initially implicated Ballantyne, Rabin says, y'all just had me scared and you already knew Breeze was there, and so that's what I figured you wanted me to say. At trial, Rabin is more expansive, saying the police beat in the desk yanked his seat, shoved Ballantyne's picture in front of him, and said, you know it's him, spooking Rabin into saying that Ballantyne had pawned the VCR. Of course, Rabin's street name was Roadrunner, and at trial, he outran the police again, figuratively rather than literally. Here's trial investigator Keith Russell. Willie Reese Rabin returned to his original story prior to trial and testified that it was Anthony Ballantyne who had pawned the VCR. Now, Russell is actually wrong about this, but he can perhaps be forgiven for his error given that Roadrunner did give shocking testimony at trial. Roadrunner did testify that Rocky pawned a VCR that night while wearing dark clothes and a brownish tan jacket. 
But he also testified that Ballantyne came to the shot house three times that night, a first time to buy crack, a second time to ask about buying crack on credit or with collateral, and a third time. This third time, he was breathing hard and had on a white t-shirt or sweatshirt. According to Roadrunner, Ballantyne had a little blood in his hands and some on his shirt. And while Roadrunner couldn't see what was in it, he testified that Ballantyne had a plastic bag on his third visit. This might lead you to recall that when the daughter of the owner of the shot house retrieved the VCR the next day, it was in a bag. The prosecution would try to claim that Roadrunner falsely implicated Ballantyne because of the $5 drug debt he owed him, but it seems unlikely this claim got much traction. There was also other bad news for Ballantyne. On October 29th, the day after Ewing, Madden, and Rabin spoke to police, an investigator working for Ballantyne would present the Decatur police with two alibi witnesses. Now, if you're keeping track, this was Ballantyne's third attempt at an alibi. After first claiming that on the night of the murder, he stayed home all night watching the Braves game, and second, claiming that he'd only gone over to his neighbor James Watkins' house. Now, he had two witnesses, his second cousin, Marion Thompson, and her friend, Erlene Gray. They both claimed that Ballantyne had been over at Thompson's house between about 11 p.m. and 12.15 a.m. Initially, it's debatable whether this was even an alibi. Ludie made Tucker's 911 call right after her stabbing was at 12.19 a.m., and Thompson's house was about a mile and a half away. So it's certainly possible that Ballantyne could have gotten from Thompson's house to Tucker's house in time to commit the murder, especially if he left a few minutes before Thompson and Gray's rough estimate that he left at about 12.15 a.m. But in any event, for reasons we'll discuss later, the police discredited the story told by Thompson and Gray, and they weren't called as witnesses at trial. But while this was all bad news for Ballantyne, he wasn't convicted of Tucker's murder. That man was Robin Rocky Myers, and this was his story. So how did a native of New Jersey end up in Decatur, Alabama? I moved, I moved from New Jersey down here, you know, to try to better myself. You know, because, because I was, um, you know, I got married and kids and and that's no, no, no thing, you know, it's not good to be on drugs and all that, you know, so I tried to better myself and I thought Alabama would have helped me out, you know, being naive. Well, they ain't got crack cocaine in Alabama. Yes, the hell they do, <laughs> you know, so um, I came down here. But my life, it was, it was okay, you know, because I was a homebody. I wasn't no, no street person, like all in the streets and... I don't even know nobody in Alabama. Most people I know in Alabama are the guys that I met here, you know, while being incarcerated. I didn't spend that much time in Alabama. Then when I was out there, I was I was home, you know, with my with my kids and my wife. She worked, um, she worked, and and when she working, I'm home. When I'm working, she's home. You know what I'm saying? So. As we discussed in episode one, Rocky Myers was Ludie Mae Tucker's neighbor, living just to the north of her. 
Here, Rocky told Colin about his interactions with his neighbor. Yeah, we was we was just like that. We was just neighbors, you know. I really didn't know her, you know, like like uh, like like I, I didn't even know her name, you know. Um, but you know, when I come out my house. And her house is directly across from mine, and she's out there. I can wave to her because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a nice guy, you know. I'm not one of those snobby with my nose in the air type of person. So I'm a wave to her. She's wave back and stuff like that. There, and a couple times I've asked, you know, hey ma'am, if you ever want me to cut the grass or anything like that, there I can do that there. But uh, I guess she has somebody to do that type of stuff, you know. But we wasn't sitting out smoking cigarettes and all that stuff. And, you know, fighting the heat together. We wasn't doing all that type of stuff, but she was a she was a nice person as far as I knew. You know, I didn't really know know her. You know, but and she, I guess she didn't really know know me, but she we recognized each other. You know what I'm saying? But did Tucker know Rocky Myers? It's quite possibly the most important question in this case. As you might recall from episode one, the killer came to Tucker's house and said he'd been in a car wreck and needed to call his family. How would this story have made any sense for Myers to tell or for Tucker to believe if both of them knew that Myers lived just across the street? Moreover, when asked about the perpetrator, Tucker gave multiple people in law enforcement a general description of the man rather than saying it's my neighbor across the street or simply pointing at his house. If Tucker did know Rocky Myers, none of this makes any sense. And yet, at trial, the defense never asked Mamie Dutton whether Tucker knew her neighbor. As this clip of a post-trial interview of Dutton reveals, that was a big mistake. Were you, uh, did y'all, did y'all, did you ever talk with her about the neighborhood? The neighborhood had gone down quite a bit, I bet so. No, I really, I really, well, she never bothered nobody. She never talked about nobody or, or nothing. Mm-hmm. She, she was just... She was just a good woman. I don't know, but I, I just, but I'm sure that was him that afternoon because I had gone out on the porch and I seen him across, uh, across the street there, mm-hmm. standing over on the street over there. Uh-huh. And I, and she said he had been there before. This guy had and got ice and stuff, you know. Yeah. The, the the guy that you saw across the street. Yeah. Well, yeah, he lived across the street. Okay. Yeah. Did y'all did y'all talk about it? Did you come in and how did that conversation come up? Well, she just said, you know, it. Uh, he always come, you know, and got ice and stuff, you know, from well, you ever said once something to her about the guy across the yeah, street. Yeah. And uh, she said, well, you know, when she talked, you know, that she knew him, you know, and. Right. Yeah, that's right. On the very afternoon of the murder. Ludie Mae Tucker had pointed across the street and told Mamie Dutton that Rocky Myers was her neighbor and that he'd come over to get ice on multiple occasions, which is the same story that Rocky had told at trial. And yet, that same night after being stabbed, Ludie Mae Tucker did not point across the street or name Rocky Myers as her murderer. So at this point, you might be wondering how the prosecution found 12 jurors who were willing to agree that Rocky was guilty. As we'll discuss next episode, They didn't. But before we get to that, we get to the inconvenient truth about this case. And it's the truth that brings the Sack of Suds killing from my cousin Vinny back into focus. And what do you remember? I'm taking you back to it's the night of the crime. It's also the night that you found this VCR in the stash alley. What can you tell me about that day? I know you're supposed to go to a club. And do you remember sort of in any detail what happened that day? 
know, uh, I know, like in the back of my house, in the back of my house, when you coming around from like my mom, my mother-in-law's house, she lived on one of them streets. I don't know the name of the street. My memory is is really messed up, and I can't hardly remember anything. And uh, but coming from her house and and um, coming around the back of my house and walking around to the front, it's it's like an alleyway and bushes and all that stuff like that there. And that's, you know, that's where you could find a lot of stuff back there. You know, and there has been a lot of things found back there. You know, so, but, um, yeah, I really, I really can't, I can't recollect the whole scenario on that part right there, and I don't want to confuse no one about that there. Uh-huh. Do you remember a time, though, when you found a VCR and you took it to the shot house? Yeah, I, I remember I did find a VCR, and I tried to trade it. I tried to, I tried to sell it for some dope, and uh, and, I, and I got it. I got the dope, and um, I went back to my house. Can't stop thinking long enough to fall asleep? Bowen Branch is here to help. Getting a great night's sleep is easier than ever thanks to the world's softest sheets brought to you by Bowen Branch. Everything Bowen Branch makes is designed with your comfort in mind. From their 100% organic cotton signature soft sheets, sheets which start out luxuriously soft and get even softer over time, to their cozy throws, to their plush towels. Bowen Branch products have thousands of five-star reviews. Their sheets are even loved by three US presidents and all three hosts of Undisclosed. With Bowen Branch, you can feel good about your good night's sleep because people are at the heart of everything they do, from the farmers who grow their organic cotton to the people who sleep in their sheets at night. They want you to love your purchase, so they offer a no-risk, 30-day trial, and free shipping. But I doubt you want to send them back. Once you sleep in their sheets, you'll never want to sleep in anything else again. To get you started, right now my listeners get $50 off your first set of sheets at bowenbranch.com, promo code undisclosed. Go to bowlandbranch.com today for $50 off your first set of sheets. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com, promo code undisclosed. bowlandbranch.com, promo code undisclosed. So let's start with the basics. There's an alley to the east of Ludie Mae Tucker's house that started south of her house, ran to the east of Rocky Myers' house, and ran up to the shot house. At trial, multiple witnesses would testify this was a stash alley where people would stash drugs and contraband when there were police in the area. And so Rocky and the defense would claim that Ludie Mae Tucker called the police right after the stabbing, with the police arriving a few minutes later and the killer seeing the police and stashing the VCR in a bush in the alley next to Rocky's house, which is where he found it. Here's a juror from the case, May Puckett, describing her takeaway from the defense's theory and the state's theory that Rocky punting the VCR must have meant that he was guilty. No, that didn't make any sense. If somebody's going to find something in the bushes and sell it, that doesn't mean they killed someone. They, you know, would use that, that part of the alley as a hiding place until the cops calmed down or, you know, went away, and then they would go back and get their, their goods and, and sell them 
it seemed logical to me. It didn't seem, I don't, I'm not familiar with that way of life, but it, it didn't sound like anything that, you know, would be out of the ordinary. And while Rocky Myers admits that he pawned the VCR, he maintains that he had nothing to do with the murder of Ludie Mae Tucker. Did you have anything to do with the murder of Ludie Mae Tucker? Oh, no. <laughs> no, sir. Hell no. I'm not that type of person, no. And uh, I wouldn't hurt nobody, no. I'm not like that. It's, just not in, it's not my character to do anything like that, you know? So, no, sir. I did not do it. Did not have anything to do with it. To get into more detail about the night of Tucker's murder, both Rocky and his brother-in-law, Donald Hood, say that Rocky and he were supposed to go to a club that night with Hood's girlfriend, but Hood ended up leaving at about 11.30 p.m. without Rocky. In terms of clothes, Rocky was wearing a dark shirt and a cap and had borrowed a brownish tan jacket from Hood to wear. With these clothes matching Roadrunner's description of the clothes worn by Rocky that night, and not at all matching the white t-shirt the victim said the perpetrator was wearing. Then, having been left behind, Rocky claims he found the VCR under the bush in the alley next to his house at some point that night, and later that night traded it for crack. It all sounds plausible, but there was one final wrinkle to the state's case. Tyrone Elliott, a.k.a. Tank. Elliott was the brother of a Decatur police officer and worked under Anthony Valentine's father at the Decatur Country Club. There's no mention of Tyrone Elliott in the Tucker murder chronology until October 29, 1991, the day after police spoke with Ewing, Madden, and Rabin. But stop if you've heard this one before. The state would claim at trial that Ewing actually told his brother and another sergeant, Sergeant Coker, about the murder on October 7th, just a couple days after the murder. This timing is awfully convenient for the state because the governor of Alabama declared a $5,000 reward in the Ludie Mae Tucker case on October 8th, the very next day. The defense would claim that Elliot was seeking the reward. The state would say that Elliot came forward the day before this reward was announced, despite there being no documentation of any contact with Elliot until the day after Ewing, Madden, and Rabin implicated Rocky. Anyway, like the alibi witnesses who didn't pan out, Elliot was interviewed by Ballantyne's defense investigator. We don't have that statement, but we do have his police statement. And here's what he said to them. On the night of the murder, his son was at the hospital. After his son was discharged, he dropped off his son and girlfriend at her house without getting out of the car himself or having any kind of conversation with them. Then he drove over to his friend Tanisha's house, whereupon he was immediately told by a man named Larry Gill that they wanted beer. And so, without getting out of the car... Elliot and Tanisha and their friend, Chris Garth, started driving to a store they called the Iranian store that sold beer. According to Elliot, as they were stopped by a stoplight just to the west of Ludie Mae Tucker's house, he saw a short black man right in front of her house, walking towards the sidewalk and then crossing the street. The man had on a dark shirt and had a dark jacket wrapped around a VCR. Elliot and others kept driving, but when they got to the Iranian store, it turned out it was closed. So they turned around and drove to the shot house, where Elliot says he saw the same man selling the VCR for drugs. And Elliot later identified Rocky Myers as the man he'd seen with the VCR. Chris Garth and Tanisha Irvin later largely corroborated this story, but Irvin had some significant differences in her story. First, Ludie Mae Tucker lived on Gordon Drive, an east-west street, with 6th Avenue being the north-south street to the west. 
Tucker's house was the second house to the east of 6th Avenue. And she said she saw the man with the VCR to the west of the first house, to the east of 6th Avenue. And that the man was actually well to the south of that house. She even drew a diagram of where the man was located. And it can't really be reconciled with what Elliot said. Irvin said that they definitely didn't go to the shot house after they went to the Iranian store. Instead, she says they went to a place called Jack's Market to get the beer. Notably, Jack's Market is just west of Ludie Mae Tucker's house, and despite the arrival of three police officers within minutes of the stabbing, Irvin doesn't say she saw any police activity there outside of Tucker's house as they drove to Jack's Market. So what's going on here? Is the entire story a lie and possibly an attempt to get the reward money? Or is this a real-world example of the Rashomon effect? It's unclear. But it did lead the defense to raise what we'll call the Superman defense. After all, Elliot said he saw Rocky Myers in dark clothes just in front of Tucker's house and heading towards the sidewalk. But Tucker and Mamie Dutton both said the perpetrator was wearing a white t-shirt. And that takes us to... You can't see it, but that's audio from the opening scene of Superman 2, in which Clark Kent eschews his typical phone booth Clovis change for a running change of suit and tie to his super suit before flying off to save Lois Lane from certain death of the Eiffel Tower. The argument of the defense at trial was simple. Rocky Myers isn't Superman. As they explain in closing argument, quote, he had to make a Superman-like change coming out the door in order to change his clothes going out the door. The defense also made another argument against Elliot's story, and it's like the Magic Grits argument made in My Cousin Vinny. Decatur General Hospital is 2.3 miles away from Elliot's girlfriend's house, about a seven-minute drive. That house to Tanisha's house is another 0.2 miles away, so add another minute or so. Then, Tanisha's house to the intersection by Ludie Mae Tucker's house is 1.1 miles, or about another three minutes. Elliot's claim in his statement in a trial was that his son was discharged from the hospital after 11 o'clock p.m., which would then fully explain why Elliot would be at the relevant intersection right after the stabbing that took place shortly before 12.19 a.m. But the defense was able to obtain the discharge paper for Elliot's son at the hospital. Turns out that Elliot's son was discharged at 9.35 p.m., more than two and a half hours before Ludie Mae Tucker was stabbed. So how in the world could the events described by Elliot expand into a two and a half hour window? It might not have the ring of Joe Pesci's Are You Sure About Those Five Minutes, but are you sure about this two and a half hours seems like a reasonably compelling argument. And then finally, we have Elliot's statement to the private investigator, which as we noted was never produced. Keith Russell, the defense investigator for Rocky Myers, took Elliot to the relevant intersection and asked him to stand where he first saw Rocky Myers. When I asked Russell about this field trip, here was his response. The bushes he was standing behind, if I remember correctly, was in the alley behind Rocky's house. And his, at Rocky's house, the old shotgun style, do you know what I'm talking about, a house? Uh-huh. Shotgun style. All right, that's what he lived in. It's a du- duplex. One little apartment on the left, one on the right, and it was long and narrow. The alley I'm speaking of would have come in from the side street and did an L behind Rocky's apartment and went back north again. So it was an L shape, so flip it backwards way it turned out those bushes were there was a like a post and i don't know why it was there it's not a city post it's like a creosote railroad tie something of that nature there i can't or round maybe it's round instead of square or rectangular but uh the bushes were coming that's where that 
Rocky said that he found the VCR that had been stolen from Ms. Ludie Bain. That was Rocky's story, that he found that, and that uh, then he took it on down to the crack neighbor. Simply put, this is huge. Elliot claimed at trial that he saw Rocky Myers to the south, just in front of Ludie Mae Tucker's house. Russell is saying that Elliot told him he saw Rocky Myers to the north, by the bushes in the alley to the east of his house. Elliot's trial story makes it look like Rocky Myers killed Ludie Mae Tucker. But what Elliot told Russell corroborates Rocky's story about finding the VCR in a bush in the alley next to his house. But you don't have to take Russell's word for it. After asking Elliot to stand where he first saw Rocky Myers, he took a photo of Elliot that was introduced at trial. It shows Elliot standing behind a bush in the alley to the east of Rocky's house. Beyond this, Rocky Myers didn't have much in the way of material possessions. According to the defense, he only had five changes of clothing, and none of them remotely matched the clothing that Tucker and Dutton said the perpetrator was wearing. But nonetheless, Rocky is a short man, and while arguably not stocky, he is not a thin man. Based on Rocky matching the physical description of the killer and the testimony that he pawned Ludie Mae Tucker's VCR at the shot house, the jury was able to return a guilty verdict. Now at this point, you might be asking for one last rewind. You might be wondering, what about Angela Acklin, the witness who said she saw Anthony Ballantyne with a bloody white shirt in an alley by Tucker's house on the night of the murder? This takes us back to Ballantyne's third rejected alibi. find the name Rita Hood in the Tucker murder chronology, but you will find her police interview and the discovery documents in the case. It's not dated, but here's what it says. On the night of the murder, she went to the shot house between 10.30 and 11 p.m. and stayed for about 10 minutes. As she was leaving, Anthony Ballantyne asked for a ride, and she agreed, driving with him to her apartment, which was a block west of Ludie Mae Tucker's house. As they arrived, she saw Angela Acklin, Acklin's dress was torn, and she said she'd been fighting and running. Thereafter, they all went inside and smoked some crack. Finally, about 20 to 30 minutes later, Rita Hood kicked them all out because she didn't want them there when her boyfriend got back. Valentine and Acklin then left the house together. Rita Hood would later testify to these facts at trial, as would Anthony Valentine, who had given up on his earlier story of being at his second cousin's house. Of course, this is good and bad for Acklin. Obviously, she made no mention of going to Hood's place in her police statement, but her statement does place her with Anthony Ballantyne just around midnight, a mere block away from Ludie Mae Tucker's house. So what would Angela Acklin say at trial? Well, nothing. Acklin did appear for the first few days of trial, but then she disappeared. According to defense counsel, Acklin didn't recant. Instead, she, quote, said she was closer to the case than she wanted to be. It's impossible to say for sure what this means, but there are clues from the defense's argument at trial. First, it came out at trial that Angela's husband, Rudolph, was himself a suspect at one point in the case. And there's also the fact that her husband was a short, stocky black man. Second, the defense argued that Acklin could have been present when Ballantyne killed Tucker, and that her footprints could have been the footprints that were found in the dew in the alley to the side of Tucker's house. In any event, the defense was allowed to read Acklin's police statement into evidence, 
but this likely carried a lot less weight than her actual testimony would have. A few years later, Rocky's team did track down Acklin, and she doubled down on her claim of seeing Valentine with a bloody white t-shirt in an alley by Tucker's house on the night of the murder. She also said that she had heard that multiple VCRs were pawned at the shot house on that night, but she didn't list the source of her information. There's one last piece of information too about the story that seems interesting. At trial, the defense asked Ballantyne about whether he saw police by Ludie Mae Tucker's house as he left Rita Hood's house. His answer? Yes, I did see the police. I remember asking Rita something about it and she said something about it and she said something about somebody that had got hurt down the street. She didn't call where it was. She said she had left home herself. I did see the police car with the lights flashing. Now, Rita Hood said she went to the shot house between 10.30 and 11 p.m., and her timeline has her kicking Ballantyne and Acklin out of her apartment shortly before midnight. The police arrived at Ludie Mae Tucker's house at 12.20 a.m. So how would Ballantyne have seen police upon leaving Hood's apartment, and how in the world would Hood have known about the stabbing before midnight after they had just been in her apartment for the last 20 to 30 minutes? Maybe Ballantyne simply misspoke or misremembered, but this seems like a bit of a smoking gun. And speaking of smoking guns, what if a study by researchers in Germany, done years after the Ludie Mae Tucker murder, could prove that Rocky Myers was not the man who took her life? Next time on Undisclosed. A big thank you to everybody who makes Undisclosed possible. Thank you to our sponsors who help us put on our episodes week after week. Thank you to Mithil Dalhan, our executive producer, for helping keep this ship afloat. Thank you to Rebecca Lavoie, our fantastic audio producer, and also the co-host and producer of a couple of my favorite podcasts, including Crime Writers On. Do not miss her podcast. Thank you to Baluki for our logo, to Christy for maintaining our website. Also, a big thank you to our listeners. Thanks for coming back week after week. Check us out and make sure to follow us online on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at UndisclosedPod. And please do not forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us. Thanks so much. See you in a week. Thank you.